David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 113 of A History of England, where we look at what John Russell's government was doing while it let the Great Famine wreak havoc in Ireland. It came to power following the fall of Robert Peel. Some see him as the father of the modern Conservative Party. Here's one of his biographers, Douglas Hurd, who himself served as a Conservative cabinet minister under Margaret Thatcher. In the new situation, which followed the Great Reform Bill of 1832, he founded the modern Conservative Party. Well, let's think about that. The split in the party that Peel precipitated marked the start of a 30-year period in which it lost five general elections in a row and hardly ever took office. And when it finally did come back to power, it was led by men who had barely a good word to speak of Peel, whom they viewed as a traitor. Is that really the track record of a man who could be called the party's founder? Russell's was the first government in that long period of conservative exclusion from power. He lacked a Commons majority, but then the split in the Conservatives meant he didn't have much of an opposition there either. As Lord Palmerston pointed out, we are left masters of the field not only on account of our own merits, which, though we say it ourselves, are great, but by virtue of the absence of any efficient competitors. The Conservative split meant that Russell often had the support of the liberal Peelite wing of the party, and with the continued backing of Daniel O'Connell's Irish MPs, that meant he could soldier on, though it hardly gave him the power to enact much in the way of major measures. He tried to reform education and did manage to get teacher training and pensions for teachers established. But resistance from the Church of England and its friends blocked his attempts to introduce non-denominational schools. Nor could he launch a proper regime of school inspections as he wished, but had to leave the idea with a parliamentary commission to study for later. Public health was also a major problem with the massive growth of population in the cities. The Russell government introduced measures to improve water supplies and drainage across England and Wales. But they didn't get far, as historian Rosemary Ashton makes clear in her description of London fully ten years later. The River Thames, emitting a sickening smell as a result of the sewage of over two million inhabitants being discharged into the river and floating up and down with the tide, never being dispelled. Russell also backed the Factory Act of 1847, which set a ten-hour limit to the working day for women and for children between 13 and 18. That's still pretty barbaric by modern standards, but it was a big step then. Political reform was an issue again. At the end of the 1820s, you'll remember, it became possible for Protestant dissenters and for Catholics to take seats in the House of Commons. However, the oath MPs had to take was still explicitly Christian. When Lionel de Rothschild, the Jewish banker, and, incidentally, the biggest individual contributor to Irish famine relief, was elected to Parliament in 1847, he couldn't take his seat because he couldn't swear that oath. Russell proposed a Jewish Disabilities Bill to remove that bar. The man who was emerging as the leading voice of the Conservatives in the House of Commons, Benjamin Disraeli, Jewish-born but a Christian convert, which is why he already had a common seat, courageously backed the bill against the bitter opposition of most of his Conservative party. However, though it was passed by the Commons, the Lords threw it out. Twice. Russell didn't stop there in his drive for constitutional reform. 
You'll remember he'd been given the nickname Finality Jack for incautiously suggesting that the Great Reform Act of 1832 had achieved all the reform Parliament and the electoral system would ever need. Perhaps stung by the nickname, he did propose some further extension of voting rights. However, that was at the end of his premiership, and his government fell before he could see the measure through Parliament. So, Russell had a few successes, but also a lot of failures. What you might expect from a weak government. Nor was that weakness only down to Russell's lack of a Commons majority. He also faced dissension amongst his own ministers. Much of that revolved around one figure, his foreign secretary, the maverick, the loose cannon, Lord Palmerston. 1848 has gone down in history as the Year of Revolutions. All around Europe, autocratic regimes faced uprisings intended to usher in more democratic forms of government, or at least systems governed by constitutions. In February, the French kicked the process off by kicking out their king, Louis-Philippe. Ironically, he was brought down by the same kind of liberal upsurge that had given him the throne 18 years earlier, in place of the autocratically inclined Charles X. Palmerston approved of what he saw in France, particularly when the regime stabilised under the new president of the Second French Republic, Louis Napoleon, nephew of the original Emperor Napoleon. Palmerston liked to present himself as a liberal, and therefore a supporter of constitutional regimes. Constitutional states, he declared, I consider to be the natural allies of this country, and no English ministry will perform its duty if it be inattentive to the interests of such states. In passing, note that use of the word English. Like many of his contemporaries, he saw Britain as little more than an extension of England. Palmerston's support of one kind of regime or another wasn't necessarily perpetual, however, as he made clear elsewhere. We have no everlasting union with this or that country. We have no natural enemies, no perpetual friends. When we find a power pursuing that course of policy which we wish also to promote, for the time, that power becomes our ally. And when we find a country whose interests are at variance with our own, we are involved for a time with the government of that country. By involved with, he meant opposed to. Palmerston also backed the 1848 rebellions against Austrian rule in Hungary and in northern Italy. However, in Italy he was also keen not to offer openings to the French, who were once more eyeing the country as a source of rich pickings. In the end, he threw his support to the new Pope, Pius IX, who seemed to be encouraging the kind of moderate reforms Palmerston also favoured. Working with the Pope wasn't likely to win Palmerston many friends in the more ultra-Protestant circles. Nor was his opposition to Austrian interests well received by many who were keen to preserve the European order which emerged from the Congress of Vienna, in which Austria had been a major power. It was now declining, but many, including Queen Victoria and her husband Prince Albert, saw no reason for Britain to help hasten that process. Queen Victoria and Albert were also unhappy about the way Palmerston worked. Foreign Office dispatches went out in the Queen's name. She wanted to see them and, if necessary, amend them beforehand. Palmerston, however, kept issuing instructions without clearing them with her first. 
Palmerston was also as inclined as ever to use the big stick. His most glaring use of what came to be known as gunboat diplomacy was in the Don Pacifico affair of 1847. David Pacifico was Maltese-born and living in Athens, but held a British passport. He was demanding compensation from the Greek government for damage to his house and belongings in anti-Semitic riots. Though his claim was ludicrously inflated, Palmerston backed him and sent Royal Navy units to blockade the port of Athens at Piraeus. Russia and France, joint protectors with Britain of Greek independence, issued strong protests over Palmerston's high-handed action. There was anger at home, too. The House of Lords passed a censure motion against him. Russell and his ministers decided to treat the censure as a matter of confidence and resign if they couldn't get it reversed in the Commons. There, Palmerston made one of his best speeches ever in his defence. He asked, Whether as the Roman in days of old held himself free from indignity when he could say, Kiwis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen, so also a British subject, in whatever land he may be, shall feel confident that the watchful eye and the strong arm of England will protect him against injustice and wrong. England would stand by its citizens wherever they were. England again, notice. The speech was widely popular in the country. The Commons overturned the censure motion. The majority, though, was hardly overwhelming. Indeed, many, even in the Cabinet, disliked what he'd done, especially as he'd failed to get their endorsement first. Earl Grey, the former Prime Minister's son, who had overcome his previous refusal to serve in government with Palmerston, had voted against the censure in the Lords, and later regretted that decision. I hope you're getting a picture of the man. Palmerston was genuinely attached to liberal values, but would always give precedence to British, or English, interests. Those he would defend with whatever means he felt necessary, including by force. And it really was what he thought necessary, acting on his own judgment without bothering to consult his colleagues or the Queen. His actions made him immensely popular, perhaps the government's greatest asset with the people, but that only made it harder than ever to discipline him, especially for a relatively weak leader like Russell. Besides, whatever he might feel about Palmerston's behaviour, Russell tended to agree with him on policy. For instance, take relations with the Pope with whom Palmerston had been prepared to cooperate. Russell decided to establish diplomatic relations with the Vatican. He almost pulled that off, until Parliament added a rider that the Vatican's ambassador to London could not be a priest. That was a restriction the Vatican couldn't accept, so the initiative fell at the last fence. In any case, Russell could be his own worst enemy, as he showed the next time he had to deal with matters concerning Catholics. The Pope decided to appoint bishops in Britain, each responsible for a geographic area of the country. That was badly received by many Protestants. Then it had been rubbed raw by the so-called Oxford Movement. It had been pushing forms of worship in the Church of England that would make it virtually indistinguishable from Catholicism. Indeed, one of its members, John Newman, who, you may remember from chapter 99, had been an unbending Anglican giving Robert Peel a lousy time in the late 1820s for supporting Catholic emancipation, 
1845 went through one of the great U-turns of all time, entering the Catholic Church where he ended up as a cardinal and, more recently, a saint. Even those who remained in the Church of England were seen as a threat to core values by more committed Protestants. In that context, the move by the Pope to appoint bishops for various territories was seen as an attempted power grab to parts of Britain. That was nonsense, of course, since the bishops' authority would have been limited to Catholics anyway. But perceptions often count for far more than substance. Russell, unfortunately, responded to the perception. He secured the passage of the Ecclesiastical Titles Act of 1851 with conservative support. It made it an offence punishable by a fine for anyone outside the Anglican Communion to take a bishop's title for any British place or town. It was unenforceable because any Catholic bishop could be treated as such by his flock without taking the title officially, so the Act simply sat on the statute book for 20 years until its repeal. After that embarrassment, Palmerston stirred things up again. In December 1851, the French President Louis Napoleon showed himself worthy of his surname by seizing imperial power as Emperor Napoleon III. Bonapartists reserved the title Napoleon II for the original emperor's young son. Palmerston approved the action and told the French ambassador so. His cabinet colleagues disliked Napoleon's abuse of power and resented the fact that Palmerston hadn't consulted them, as did the Queen and Prince Albert. Palmerston, however, refused to budge. Russell finally decided he had to act. He demanded and obtained Palmerston's resignation. Immensely popular though he was, Palmerston was out. But within weeks he disabused anyone of the idea that he might go quietly. He proposed an amendment to a Russell-sponsored bill in Parliament and won the vote amid cheers at Russell's expense. Russell decided the game was up and his government resigned. Palmerston wrote to his brother, I have had my tit-for-tat with John Russell, a good measure of just how far relations between them had sunk and how petty at least one of them could be about it. We've reached February 1852 and Lord John Russell has fallen from power. It's now up to the Conservatives to try their luck forming a government. That's our subject for next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 